Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast, where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, and today I am speaking with uh, John Duran peters professor of English and Film and Media Studies at Yale University, and his latest book, Promiscuous Knowledge, uh, which was published earlier this year. John, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so to start, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your um, your background, your educational background, professional background, and kind of your um, your journey. Sure. What a great question. I never quite know where to start that. I mean, I can start where I am. I'm at Yale now, which is a complete surprise because I grew up in New England and I didn't particularly like it here, but I've somehow come back um, in my seventh decade to live in New England, I've always been fascinated by questions of, you know, profound questions of like how the world works. You know, maybe they're really obvious, stupid, basic questions. I think the sort of boundary between basic and profound is is sometimes hard to figure out. And I think that's why I'm so interested in media. Because, you know, when we think about media, sometimes we think about, you know, obvious things like the internet or phones or devices or, or television. But media can also be things like time itself or our body. And I guess that, you know, all my life I've, as as the son of a a doctor, my father's a doctor and an artist, my mother, that those two sort of interests um, have sort of created the boundaries of my imagination, where on on the one side you have a kind of scientific questioning about how things fit together in our bodies, and then the artistic imagination about what could be possible or, or how you, you could break through. To be a little more uh, concrete, um, I was born in Utah. I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to school at um, Brigham Young University, went on a church mission to the Netherlands, which was life-transforming because I got to live outside of English for a couple of years, which everybody should do. This dominant language we have, we should learn to live outside it. Agreed. And, you know, it's just too much, too much English monolingualism. Um, then um, undergrad, University of Utah, PhD, Stanford. Then I taught at University of Iowa in the great Midwest for almost 30 years with several times abroad in there also to Greece, to England, to um, Finland, and to the Netherlands. So that's a kind of long looping story of... um places and interests and and times and here I am wonderful yeah so you have a really great um, journey and I and I agree with you about the um, just defining media and researching media there's so many different ways to look at it yeah and to interact with it uh, it's it's really endless because <laughs> you can really go macro and just go uh, right down to the micro of all kinds of different things, um, as you mentioned, like even in your book, um, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, uh, media and capitalism and, and journalism and all the way to like fandom right. communities. Right. Uh, it's it's 
really, really broad. And of course, that's kind of made things even more complicated with um, with the World Wide Web and the internet. So true. Um, yeah. So your book um, was a really fascinating title, um, Promiscuous Knowledge, but it has an even more fascinating history because it's um, co-authored with um, Kenneth Camille, but not. Um, so can you tell us about the journey of how this, this book came about? Yes. So um, um, Kenneth Camille was a very close friend of mine at the University of Iowa. We, we met by chance in the library w- one day. It's almost like, you know, a romantic comedy because there was this faculty study where people, you know, could hang out and have access to computers. And this guy kept working and making noises as he's working. I thought, this is really annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Then then I looked at what he was working on. He had a pile of books there and they were all like books that I was either reading or wanted to read. And he started chatting and, and we became fast friends. And so, you know, we did a lot of stuff together. We co taught, we co authored. Um, my son, you know, was a, a kind of summer nanny for his kids at, at, at one point. You know, so just a, you know, a lot of shared life and shared conversation. But the idea of really sharing book authorship never occurred to us. Um, and the tragedy is, is that on Groundhog Day of um, 2006, Ken collapsed from an undiagnosed uh, brain tumor. And even though he officially lived on two more days, I mean, he was gone almost instantly. And it was really traumatic for his wife and three kids and traumatic for lots of people because he was, he was deeply, deeply beloved. And he had told his wife that if anything happened to him, that he wanted me to have his books. He was a great book collector. And this was, this was an amazing windfall and gift. And with it came papers, you know, stuff that he was working on. And I realized, why don't I as a tribute you know, finish this book that he and he's talked about so much with me. It was a kind of, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the dawn of enthusiastic youth, not knowing better how hard it would actually be to try to co-author with someone who I really knew well and cared about, but, but who wasn't there. But yes, I mean, that was 2006 that I probably had this idea and the book was published in 2020. So that's obviously a long <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's, um, you know, I don't know how I came up with the idea of, of co-authoring um, with Ken. I mean, he did have a few drafts and a few notes, and I knew what he wanted to write, and I thought it would be easy, but of course I was, I was totally deluded. It was not at all easy, partly emotionally and partly intellectually. I mean, emotionally, it's hard just because of um, feeling like a fraud that, you know, that he would do it better. What right do I have to speak in his name? And partly intellectually, because I realized that his interest and his style and the time that he's thinking about this, you know, um, were different because, you know, he really started thinking about the question of the internet, digital culture, the blurring of image and information, the way that our knowledge categories get leaky you know, he was thinking about truthiness, basically. You know, you wouldn't call it that in, in, in the nineteen late 1990s. And, you know, our world is something like the 1990s, but it's also radically different. So both of those things were hard, the emotional part and the kind of intellectual updating part, finding the right voice. And I think, I mean, I think you did a, a beautiful job 
uh, with the book um, because I can only imagine how difficult that is. Yeah, emotionally, like kind of actively mourning the loss of a of a dear friend and colleague, while simultaneously wanting to do him justice, right? Yeah. Give give him a voice. Um, so I just I don't I'm not really sure that I don't believe that I've ever come across a, a book that that kind of has this very unique history in writing. But I think it's I think it's great that you um, that you know you were able to kind of power through it and and get it published and that we're now talking about it. Um, and I'm sure that um, that Ken is 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 proud yeah, <laughs> that you okay. were able to to kind of you know give uh, life to. Um, you know, to, to a lot of his ideas, um, and, and talking about this is such a unique uh, journey. And it's, I mean, by, it's pretty difficult, I think, just to write a book, any book, (laughs) you know, an academic book and things like that, but to do so with, with kind of the emotional attachment and also being able to, um, as you mentioned, uh, how do you speak for him? And you talk about that in the book, how do I write for him and, and write in his voice and how do I distinguish his voice versus my voice? And, and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, I think it's really great that that you. I, I'm I'm happy that you were able to publish this book and that um, we can read it because I think it's got some really important um, content. Um, yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so you mentioned, um, you know, that Ken was talking about like truthiness, uh, and you start the book on chapter one, warning Horatio, where you talk about facts and pictures. Yeah. Um, so you talk about kind of. Uh, this idea of knowledge and and just kind of the history of facts. Can you um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, this is um, one of the things I like about chapter one, where it starts, is that that is very close to what Ken's um, program was, and it's very close to his voice because you know it starts with this beautiful kind of face off between facts, facts and pictures, in which he says we we've often assumed that facts are the or the stuff of knowledge, whereas pictures are seductive, dangerous, delusional, fascinating, enchanting, but things we need to keep our guard up about, whereas facts are are given, obvious, building blocks, bricks, by which we can build up science, knowledge, truth. And of course, he goes on so brilliantly to start deconstructing that opposition to show how facts are things which are which are made. And, and, you know, the rest of the chapter is basically about the invention, the very invention of the notion of fact in the 17th century, um, in 17th century science and a little bit of law and a little bit of painting, but basically the idea that you can have this little nugget, this little kernel of experience, which is immune to theory or immune to interpretation or um, immune to um, emotion, which is kind of a crazy odd idea because when you actually look at how facts get produced in laboratories or in editorial rooms or in, in newsrooms or in classrooms, I mean, facts are, are fluid, wonderful, disputatious things in the same way that pictures aren't necessarily only, only seductive or dangerous. You know, one of Ken's examples was, you know, he, he, quotes a famous theorist saying that everything visual is ultimately pornographic. And and Ken just um, denies that. So, I mean, interesting thought, but you're wrong. You know, he talks about carrying pictures of his kids with him or, you know, medical imaging or, or things like this in which there isn't a kind of 
weird psychosexual connection to uh, to the visual at all. It's just some. Um, so I mean, the the pictures can also have that claim to objectivity and and to truth. So. You know, he starts off with what seems like a common sense distinction and ends up with a wonderful kind of uh, omelet. Or maybe scrambled eggs is better when we realize, wait, packs, pictures, facts, pictures, fixtures. <laughs> he doesn't use, use right. those words, but you know, that, that's, that's kind of the thing that we're, we're stuck with. And you know, one of the strategies which Ken had as a historian was he always wanted to find examples in the past that illuminate the present. And in chapter one, it's really quite remarkable how creatively he pointed to moments in the 17th century, in the 1600s, that really seem to be like uncannily like, you know, the things that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I um, so I, I I had to chuckle when I when I read um, <laughs> his criticism of Frederick, uh, Frederick Jameson, oh. um, the, the famous, uh, you know, uh, in, very often tied with um, with kind of his um, critique of postmodernism was when he talks about the visual, and then I know um, talks about uh, you know you bring up like Jean Luc Godard um, and Hamlet. You know the whole world is is too much for an image. This idea that there's that image can't quite capture. Yeah. Uh, things. Um, and then Bart, obviously Roland Bart, very, you know, thinking about the third meaning and really looking about how mm-hmm. we can be deceived. By, by images and that um, they can sometimes give us a lot more information than we think, but that, you know, looking at visual images as fact, then we can get into a slippery slope, right? Right. Um, so when you're thinking about um, where does it really get tricky when, when we start um, thinking about visuals because you really kind of talk a lot about that through throughout the book right. um so where where do you think that that's really um where visuals or facts kind of start just getting tricky for us as as a society for people who are actually uh engaging with this from a historical standpoint yeah what a what a great question and there are, i mean i think one big issue that the book keeps pointing to is framing you know obviously one of the features of any image is that it's framed, it's cropped, it's, um, it's got edges. And that is obviously one of the ways that, that any visual image is constrained or um, that isn't quite the right word, contextualized, is interpreted. The way you cut it, it's going to affect how it's read, obviously. Um, but we're also interested in framing um, in in a larger way. Like, you know, what is the context in which a visual image circulates. Like, you know, Ken was very fascinated by the fact that um, the American Historical Association started to allow pictures to be in its, in its official historical scholarly journal in the middle of the 1980s. And so I mean, there's an interesting frame because what, what, you know, the scholarly ethos for a long time had been dry as dust, word only, I mean, argument word, I mean, it doesn't need to be dry, of course, um, but the but the pictures start to break in not only to the New York Times or not only to um, you know other kind of bastions of you know intellectual respectability, but into a scholarly practice which prides itself on on truth. You know, so I mean, the, you know, the way that that images sort of break the frame that they leak beyond uh, beyond their uh, boundaries is something that's that's really interesting to us. In the book, 
And I'd say um, besides frames, we, we might talk about medium specificity. Um, that is that how you read an image depends upon how you think it is made. And so when you see um, a photograph um, and you know it's an analog photograph that was taken with silver nitrate, you're going to assume that there's something potentially unmediated there, that there's a connection, an indexical connection is what all the uh, photography theorists call it. You know, a real connection between the light that was there at the scene and the light which is written on the photographic um, emulsion. But if you know it's a digital image, then, then you open up all kinds of concerns about was it doctored, was it edited, was it photoshopped? How do we know that, um, you know, that this picture of we have a great picture of um, I think it's chapter five of uh, Oprah Winfrey, who was photoshopped onto Anne Margaret's body, which Oprah yeah. Winfrey was <laughs> deeply upset about. But you know, these these are potentials of, you know, if you think of the image as in those indexical terms is just kind of capturing the real thing, like migrant mother, you know, Dorothea Lange's famous picture, there are two kids, actually three kids you can see in, in the picture. That image, she cropped out the three other kids. Um, and there's a lot of argument about, was this because she wanted to appeal to middle-class notions of what a proper family size is or that it just didn't look as good? So, I mean, there's a question of framing but when we when we look at the at that image, we realize that um, Dorothea Lange took several pictures of of the so-called my written mother, and we realize that oh, this is actually contrived or artificial, or is is a direct result of artistic choice. And so, the idea that the image is something that's purely factual, or purely just a readout of the light that was there at the scene starts to break down once you understand the specificity of the medium. Is it, is it digital? Is it photographic? Is it online? Yeah, this whole question of trust, which I think is really at the heart of the book. I mean, how can you trust a fact to be a fact or an image to be an image of, of what is really there? How does trust work is um, the thing which we, I don't know that we ended up with good answers. And I'm saying we because, you know, I do feel weirdly enough that it was some kind of joint joint production. We did talk a lot about it, even though I also feel really nervous in saying we. Because you know, I, some on some days, I think Ken would totally hate this. He would come down from the sky <laughs> and say, John, what are you doing? Just leave me in peace. <laughs> well, I think that's, you know, that that's what good friends and good colleagues are for. So I think, you know, because you you shared such a, a long and, and deep uh, friendship, uh, both, you know, personally and professionally, I think, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I, I would probably feel the same way of, uh, you know, if I was really, you know, bringing to life someone else's voice. I mean, you can't, how do you do that? Right. So there's always yeah. going to be that, that hesitation. How do you bring the image how do you frame them in a way that right that is truthful so you can even use that argument um yes but yeah you know when i first was leafing through when i first got the book and i kind of leafed through it i i it, that <laughs> the image that tv guide uh cover from uh 1989 with oprah winfrey i'm like that's not oprah that was like my immediate <laughs> you know my immediate response because i'm like why did they think even back then that this would look that this would be okay on any level whatsoever. Right. Um, 
So really uh, just bizarre. And yeah, and with uh, with Dorothea Lange's kind of photojournalism, when you look at the series, it really, you're like, wow, there's so much context that's missing from that very famous photo, Um, which is which is why I think, you know, I, I stress in my students, like context, we have to look at the context and we have to look at the con- like the original context of what, what was happening in society. What does this look like? And we have to look at her work, even that series within all of, all of the photographs that she took, because you can see that they're staged yeah, in some capacity. Your students but, are lucky. I wish everybody in this nation had you as a teacher. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> no, it, it, it is. It is really true. Even though this this book is not a how to book um, at all. I mean, I think the you know one deep hope is that it, this will help people know how to read um, images and and facts better because it's such a desperate need um, in this moment in which you know we all knew that there was going to be something about email released in October um, that's going to try to sway the election. And we all should just be prepared. Oh, yeah, Hunter Biden, the New York Post hasn't even authenticated it. Let's stop worrying about it. But I'm not sure that that the public really has has that ability to to read, because what we see is all these headlines about um, Hunter Biden's emails, which somehow evoke these, you know, the haunted house of Hillary Clinton's emails. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's and that. Thank you for bringing up that point because that's actually really terrifying. As soon as I saw, I think I got an alert on my, like my, you know, my my phone notifications. I was like, oh no, oh no, it's like deja vu to to four years yeah. ago. We're like, why why is this happening? Um, I think even if you listen to the rhetoric um, when when Trump speaks, it's so. Um, I mean, he he knows what he's saying is 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 alternative facts, quote unquote, yeah. right? But yeah. it's the way he says it, it with like with an, a, a, you know, a tone of authoritarianism that, that speaks to um, his base. And, and it's, and that really is terrifying because it becomes a game of uh, where, where facts don't matter. Um, yeah. You know, so where it becomes really the, the, the image, the vision. So when you, when you think back with television, which I, which you talk about here and thinking about, well, you know, that the Kennedy Nixon debate, the first time we're actually able, you know, we were able to see presidents debate on television that completely changed, you know, uh, it's really odd for students nowadays to think about not seeing the president right. <laughs> in the way that we do now. Right. Right. I mean, Trump is, Trump is so interesting because he's able to be a kind of comedic authoritarian. And what I mean by, by comedic, he's always inv- invoking kind of the right of the poet to have this willing suspension of disbelief. You know, I, I can't quite get my head around this because it feels like he's hijacked. One of the things I really treasure about poetry and art and music and cinema is that you get to go into an alternate reality. And it's wonderful. You go to a movie, you read a poem, you read a novel, you're in an alternate world and you can kind of suspend those bills you need to pay or that, you know, lawn you need to mow and, and the world gets suspended and that's glorious. But we're not used to that kind of suspension, this willing suspension of disbelief being invoked in, in politics, but, but he, he does it because he can always say something totally outrageous and then he can turn around and reframe it. We're back to framing again and say, Oh, that was just a joke. I was just kidding. Which of course is what 
bullies and uh, abusers do. Oh, I sure. Wasn't, I wasn't beating you up. I that I was just I was expressing my love. You know, right. It's a very toxic um, behavior yeah. Yeah. to do that. And and you're right. I mean, it's it, in regards to this kind of we have to suspend. You know, you have this kind of. Um, you know, when you go into a movie, you like, you know, it's not real, but you can get really into it. And he's, and he's playing on that. Um, you know, when we think, and you mentioned like Ronald Reagan in here, we think about, uh, you know, having a movie star that became president and how he really, you know, how television and just that kind of cinematic framing became a bigger part of the white house, having a Hollywood star as the president, but that's so drastically different than it is now because I think Probably. more it was more of the medium with Reagan, um, but now it's more of the distort like using the medium to distort facts and realities. If, if that may if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean I think um, I mean I was not a particular fan of Reagan either because I thought that he used the media that were available to distort facts. The um, the one that I don't know why this sticks with me is when he defined ketchup as a vegetable. Uh, so, so <laughs> you could stop uh, subsidizing, you know, school lunches. Oh, ketchup's a vegetable. We're going to count this that way. I mean, there was plenty of distortion of facts under Reagan, but you know, the kind of media history is is so interesting because the sort of cinematic grandeur of his pink-cheeked, you know, pompadoured, you know, honey-voiced. You know, he's a radio guy. Ultimately, Reagan was a radio guy. I mean, his his voice is really good. It's different from the kind of total onslaught of 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 a Twitter. See, I mean, Reagan had to work with editors. He had to work with mainstream media that had some filters. You know, whereas t- Twitter doesn't have filters. Although there's a lot of whining lately about you know Twitter and Facebook filtering the the, the uh, Hunter Biden story. But you see, see what I mean? I had a colleague who talked about that the key thing about is, is this in the book, Promiscuous Knowledge? I don't remember if we talk about this. The, uh, yeah, I think it's in chapter six, The Disappearance of the Editor. And, and yes. There was the kind of curatorial responsibility to adjudicate what is worth being in this mainstream medium. You know, what's worth being on the front page, what's worth being in there at, at all. It, there isn't gatekeeping. It's a kind of obvious point that many people have made about digital media that was once heralded as being revolutionary and democratic that anybody can be a producer, anybody can be a free speaker, but what it ends up producing is a world of a flatness in which nobody can believe anything because you don't have the frame. Right. And I think, you know, this idea of fake news or distorting information, as you mentioned, I mean, that goes back to, that goes way beyond him. I mean, since we've had information, we've had fake Right, false, false news. Yeah, you name it. Right, so um, yeah, because you you mentioned like um, you know P.T. Barnum. I actually was was um, talking about him in class uh, this week uh, in in a, a lecture about public relations. So when you think about you know the greatest showman and how some of those ideas of what it meant to deceive the public for profit uh, back then, just just to you know for entertainment, you know to get them to come into these kind of you know. Uh, Museum of Oddities and, and the circus and everything. Um, so it's so fascinating to look at that history going well beyond 
like public relations as as a, yeah. a profession, right? So um, before Ivy Lee, before Edward Barnes, um, and so yeah. But I, I think you know, as you mentioned with the technology, it's just it's an onslaught, and and I, I know that students are very overwhelmed. I mean, most people are overwhelmed, but students um, just wanting to like navigate college and and their own lives, and um, I think it becomes so much more difficult to kind of sift through well, what is real, what is not, because it's really an exhausting process. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, not that we should be yearning for the flesh pots of epistemic authority, but I think that's really what, especially chapter six of the book is about, is how did we lose trust in legitimate people who know, in expertise, basically. And, you know, the, um, Ken, Ken did a lot of really interesting work there talking about how like medicine shot itself in the foot, like with the, with the Tuskegee syphilis experiments or with its history of sexism around women's health. And so in, in the seventies, there was a lot of loss of trust uh, in medicine, the uh, law universities. I mean, they, they all kind of went um, underwent a downward slope in terms of general uh, prestige. And that's really problematic you know, and I I know it can sound undemocratic, you know, in a in a culture like the U.S. to say that we need epistemic authorities, we need people who are experts in the domain of knowledge. But I totally th- think we do. And you know, you, you go to the doctor, you don't want him to start googling what he thinks your your best healthcare is going to be. You want deep expertise. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's about finding how do we like for example, YouTube is is a great tool um, because it has, um, you know, there are democratic elements to it where you can get your information published. Like if you, if you're a filmmaker, you can get your content out there, um, you know, and there are some legitimately good content. um, And then there's a a ton that's not right. Um, But then once you start getting, you know, individuals who are claiming things that are not really true, then Right. But then you have freedom of speech. So it becomes a struggle. Like, how do we balance that? How do we balance to give people a voice and make it this kind of uh, democratic without just completely like abolishing some sort of like professional voice, which is something that you talk about in the book, right. like the experts. Right. right. Yeah. So the idea of like WebMD versus a trained licensed physician. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so can you um, can you t- tell us a little bit more about what really the definition of promiscuous knowledge is, which is the title of the book and also the title of chapter six? Right. Thank you. Um, first, um, Ken um, went to um, a Catholic school growing up, and according to his um, his 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 wife, Ken would always giggle when he brought up this title because he thought it was slightly naughty. And it, it, it is it is slightly <laughs> naughty, but it really it really fits nicely. You know, my wife has also always been telling me that I need to get sex in the title of one of my books. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, we've sort of done it. So that aside, I mean, it is a kind of I don't know, it isn't lurid, but it's just it's got a, a soup soul of risqueness in it. A, a little provocativeness. A, a little provocativeness in it. So a uh, promiscuous knowledge is basically um, the increasing leakiness between professional and popular modes of knowing. And in chapter six, Ken says that it's basically 
a process that happens in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he doesn't, he doesn't, it's not a story of decline and fall. It's not a lament because he sees a lot of good things happening. The Boston Women's Health Collective publishes Our Bodies Ourselves, which allows women to take charge of, of their medical care to stop pathologizing pregnancy or menstruation, for example. I mean, I, mean, every, I think everybody should celebrate that kind of, of openness or the way that um, gay activists were able to um, depathologize homosexuality out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I mean, those are things we can celebrate Absolutely. in, in uh, promiscuous knowledge that, that everyday ordinary people were able to talk back to experts and say, look, you're wrong. You're oppressing me. You're hurting me. This is not, this is not true. And so, you know, promiscuous knowledge is not something that we mean to, uh, to uh, lament. On the other hand, promiscuous knowledge means that it's about breaking frames. It's, it's about um, making the boundaries of, of expertise, um, you know, more open, more porous, more fluid. And that can be good and that can be bad. If you, if you drain out all of the expert knowledge so that no one can trust it, then that's the kind of ultimate um, problem of a, of a promiscuous knowledge. And just, just one other point on the definition of promiscuous knowledge. Um, chapter six basically says it's, you know, it's a particular historical development in the late 20th century in which, you know, expert knowledge becomes more open to democratic critique. Um, but, but the book argues that really any kind of knowledge has always been somewhat promiscuous because anything that we know always has to be framed and the universe is always going to be bigger than anything that that we mortals um, can know. And so, any effort that we can that we can make to encompass the world in in an encyclopedia, in a poem, in a scripture, in a in a codex of laws, you know, a constitution, we're always going to fall short. And so, you know, so it's both a, a kind of how can I put this eternal problem? Promiscuous knowledge is an eternal problem that our knowledge is always going to be leaky and open to uh, revision. But it's also a much more historically specific problem about the rise of think tanks, about the rise of digital media, about the transformation of libraries, about the rise of popular visual media such as television. And this is really the story that we tell in the last two chapters of the book that completely reorganizes what we understand knowledge to be. In which, for example, you know, um, a public library starts to see itself as an information service rather than, you know, give you maps and Kelly Blue Books, you know, and, and information for living, not just access to literature. You know, I mean, right. that's one example of the many changes that, that are happening in the late 20th century. So, yeah, so there's a long definition of promiscuous knowledge. It's, it's the openness or porousness between professional and popular knowledge. And so when we get to kind of this definition of promiscuous knowledge, you really start, um, you talk, you know, in, in the opening, um, you know, in the, in the first chapter, you talk about the, you know, truth and, and facts and images. And then you you um, move on over to Victorian culture and uh, what you term as the diffusion of learning, which to me kind of automatically like uh, brings up Michel Foucault and this idea of, of truth and power and the right. dissemination of, yeah. of long, of, you know, of knowledge uh, through discourse. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of what was happening in both, uh, you know, in Victorian, including American uh, Victorians, uh, this idea that the world started being filled with facts? 
Yeah, so American Victorians loved that. They were excited. They were thrilled by the abundance of, of facts because there was a strong faith in, I mean, in that word that you said, in learning, that, that people could put the facts together on their own. And, you know, th- this this culture of the, th- the thick culture of fact, as Ken calls it, does produce P.T. Barnum's, but it also produces Henry David Thoreau's people who, I mean, if you look at, at Thoreau's journal, he's just a fact collector. He goes out to the woods and he wants to know about butterflies and loons and ice and trees and railroads and sounds. And, you know, the, the sort of obsessive documentation, the sense that we can get it all to add up somewhere was was really a kind of, I think, remarkable and somewhat wonderful quality of the 19th century. Um, as we look back at this, we call this faith in progress. In the, the 19th century thought that, you know, you, you give people a lot of facts, um, they can put it together, everybody can figure it out, we're going to have diffusion of knowledge. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting statistics in, in that chapter about, like, the the growth of the census or the explosion of, of printing or the postal service or public libraries. And it is true that, you know, you look at it, Abraham Lincoln, you had the Bible and maybe some Cicero and maybe the Columbian orator, you know, like three books in his house. And those books were enough to produce probably the greatest speaker this country's ever produced, except for maybe Martin Luther King. Um, you know, Whereas, you know, by the end of the century, people are swimming. They're crowded, you know, the middle classes, especially with just stuff everywhere. Facts abound. And so by the end of the 19th century, people are starting to get, to get nervous and figuring out how do we control this, this overload of facts. And you get inventions like the Dewey Decimal System, which is an effort to organize libraries you get it, the effort of the Library of Congress to get organized, which was just a kind of chaotic disaster by the, the middle of the 19th century, but, but then does get, um, uh, does get pulled together. You get efforts in law to organize you know, case books and, and, and so on. So there's a, that chapter really talks about you know, the, early in the 19th century, the love of facts because of faith in progress and the faith in the democratic capacity of everybody to learn to a shift to a nervousness about the overflow and a desire to try to channel all, all, all these facts that are pointing in every, every direction. Can you bring up, um, for example, like the daguerreotype? Um, there's a kind of a, a great little sidebar of um, Emily Dix, uh, Dickinson and vision and how she describes herself versus how she herself looks in a photograph, which I thought was um, kind of poignant to, to even think about, um, selfies, which is another sidebar that you have uh, in the book. And you talk also about um, specifically how the technology even back then has like real limitations on what could be photographed um, because of how long it took to, to, to create, right, uh, an image using the, the daguerreotype um, technology and, and just this, uh, um, this idea of how we capture these things and how it's, you know, for me, I think I'm always fascinated to look at how like the evolution of it and to see how some things actually still connect to today. So looking at daguerreotypes, they're not selfies, but also looking at maybe the distortion of how um, somebody, how you view yourself and how the world views you yeah. based on this image that isn't really 
truthful, right? Yeah, I mean that's that also brings up the the sidebar in chapter two on airbrushing, which is written yes. by my wonderful former student uh, Gina Giotta, and 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 that was it. That freaked people out when they saw their own uh, daguerreotypes. They said, "I don't look like that." That's not <laughs> <No>. Yeah. <laughs> and now people embrace it, but yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and I think, think that is, there's even a generational difference between people like um, my age and, and my grandchildren. I think my grandchildren know what they look like digitally and, and they're kind of used to it. And it's just taken me a while to just get used to that. Yeah, that is me. That's, um, that's what I look like. But there was a, a, a major industry in the 19th century of, of photo doctoring or, or airbrushing to make photography more flattering for people who didn't like the harshness, you know, the pitilessness of the sun, or you know of this of this mechanical inscription. And you know it is true that you know the, the long exposure of the daguerreotype does kind of force you to um, clench your face your face muscles into maybe a Emerson. We we have a great little quote from Emerson in which he's talking about. You know, basically taking on the pose of a rictus. You know, he felt like the rigor mortis was setting in um, as he had to pose for his uh, daguerreotype. But I mean, this is a such a good question about, you know, is this truth or is this falsehood? Because you know, you're, you're not doctoring the, the uh, daguerreotype. It's the light which is writing itself mechanically on, on the chemicals. Um, so you can say, you know, it really is true. But on the other hand, there are things about it that aren't true because when we look at each other's faces, we look at faces that are moving, that are speaking. I mean, we'd never look at each other's faces frozen for 20 seconds. Right. And, and you know what I mean? So that yes. that's the question of medium specificity again. It, there's a distortion built into the supposed truth mechanism. Go, go ahead. You're going to say something. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. No, I, I'm done, I think, for now. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, to bring up kind of the, the medium specificity that um, just this week I was, you know, chatting with students about um, filmmaking and how filmmaking is flat. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an illusion of moving images, right? You have yeah. with, um, with contemporary cinema, you have 24 frames per second. And we, we kind of suspend disbelief uh, when we're watching it, which we talked about earlier. Um, but it really is kind of almost bizarre to explain that, you know, and for students to be like, oh, right, I'm watching something that's 2D. It's, you know, when you're framing and composing shots, um, you know, great cinematographers that have a wonderful eye for, for composition and for design, along with, you know, all of their, their crew, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of talent in that to, to really make, because it's a flat medium, right? So, I mean, to make things, to give audiences the illusion of depth and height and, um, you know, these stunning shots or the, the psychological feeling that can come from like a really menacing, extreme close up and things like that. So I, just within film, that language is very specific of just from wanting something to look, you know, beautifully composed all the way to the psychological reactions that they want to elicit in the audience, as well as the psychological reactions within the characters on screen. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a really a fantastic example. It reminds me of, of a, of a couple things. Um, one is I, I recently found this great quote from Herman Melville, the, the author of Moby Dick, of, of course, in which he's complaining about his uh, 
uh, daguerreotype picture. And he says that, you know, what a devil of an unspellable word, first of all. It is really hard to, to uh, spell. <laughs> it gets me, yeah, it gets me every time too. I agree with him on that. When, then he says, but he says, I refuse to be oblivionated by a daguerreotype. And Melville is always so so profound. Oblivionated is is the word that erased. You know, you usually think of photography as immortalizing or eternalizing. You know, those two pictures of Emily Dickinson are the only pictures we ha- we have of her, and so we kind of cling to them as a record or a document or a relic of truth of what of having been there. This was really Emily Dickinson, whereas Melville is seeing something. I mean, Dickinson sees this too. The way that a, a picture can erase or a, a picture can fail, fail to capture the world. So like, you know, to your point, you know, cinema obviously doesn't capture depth unless it's, it's 3d, but you know, we, uh, we can supply that. And it, it, I think one of those little mini climaxes of the book is the discussion in chapter four of the French uh, film theorist, Andre Bazin, um, whom my long, longtime colleague Dudley Andrew is, I think, the world expert in. But uh, Bazin is, is a devout Catholic and existentialist who thinks a lot about the ontology of the photographic image. I mean, this is very well known. And one of the neatest things which Bazin says about this is that the photographic image doesn't capture all of reality because there are things in reality that you can't see. <laughs> I mean, for, for, from a, a nice Catholic theological perspective, you can see, you know, what he's talking about. I mean, there are, there are spiritual realities that the camera's not going to capture, but obviously there are political realities, there's weather reality, there's human realities. I mean, there's biological realities. I mean, I have a nice view of the colorful trees outside my window now. I, I can take a picture of that, but that's not going to capture the chlorophyll that's happening in every cell. It's not going to capture you know, this complicated autumnal process of, of leaves falling. And so this, this mix of how images do capture something that's real and that, which is really there, but also always fail to, I think is a nice little parable of what promiscuous knowledge is. Yeah, and you mentioned even in the book when you talk about Bazan, where he really looks at realism and artifice as, um, as a partnership exactly. and not as... Op- on the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Um, and certainly, yeah, he's um, he comes up so often in in film theory. You, I mean, you just you can't get away from Andre Bazan, yeah. uh, rightfully so. He has a lot of um, a lot of things to say, and, and of course, his his journal Cahiers du Cinema is is um, remarkably influential, as you mentioned in the book. Um, so we think about these things, you know, and Bazan is is very much, I think, a, a realist in that regard and in, in looking at images. Um, and I definitely appreciate his his voice. And then when we talk about kind of the the framing or the lack of realism, that that kind of brings me back to uh, Walter Benjamin's, um, you know, the work in the um, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, like yeah. the, the missing aura, um, which I think you mentioned. Uh, not directly, but but when we first started speaking, this idea of when somebody looks at an analog image, there's there's almost like a more of a built-in trust in the analog image versus the digital image, which isn't necessarily true, but we tend to give yeah. more weight to something that was actually like like shot on, you know, 
35 millimeter celluloid, um, you know, actual physical material light actually going through a camera and imprinting on, um, you know, on a negative. Um, and that's why like some filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino famously is, will never film on digital because he just, yeah. he sees it as kind of a deterioration of, of the image of the, of the, you know, the, the beauty of filmmaking. Um, and I think there's multiple ways to look at that, but I, but I do think that, um, so I definitely appreciate that you, you bring that in. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on this idea of, you know, like Benjamin's idea of the missing aura and how that relates to visuals or even to, um, facts or, or information in, in contemporary society that's so, um, you know, just drenched in, in the digital. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a really good question because Benjamin is so, so pervasive. One of my students once said that his essay is all too famous. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Your student's not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) It it is, it is a really famous essay, but he, he says that objects that have an aura are singular and out of circulation. And, and so I, I think this sort of, it's a wonderful German word, einmaligkeit, which is like, you know, one, one timeness, literally, something which exists in only one place and one time at one moment can have an aura. But when it's, when it's multiplied, and, you know, it's, I mean, which makes it complicated for photography because photography is always something which you double. You know, it's, you know, it can have an aura, but it can just be like, if it's a photographic plate, then that's an example of, of a single, you know, not a multiple copy that you can get like with, with negatives. I don't know that, you know, the specific beef with Benjamin in the book is, is that he, Benjamin celebrates distraction in that essay. And, and he says, he actually thinks, you know, people don't often realize this. They, they read that essay as a lamentation. Whereas in part, it's a celebration of the loss of the aura because Benjamin thinks that it allows people to um, be much more creative in interacting with images as opposed to a kind of attitude of respect or reverence or sacredness that people can take on images and argue with them and make them their own and play with them. And so he really celebrates this idea that like when we go to the cinema, we can talk back to it. We can be, uh, we can be uh, uh, distracted. Um, which is, you know, I, I think that's a, something which does start to happen um, in the 80s and 90s with a, with a TV in which that, you know, there's a sort of romance of the viewer interacting with your um, TiVo and, you know, remote control device, a romance or disgust either way. But, that, you know, it becomes a much more distractible medium in which you're, you're much more in command of it. I don't know. Did that go anywhere? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it did. I mean, there, there's, um, I, I think, I think, you know, I personally like Benjamin's um, article because it, it brings up some of that tension and some of the, the, the questioning of, well, what, you know, when we look at it, when he first wrote it um, many decades ago, um, in, you know, in the thirties, in and then what do we do with it now? And, yeah. and where's the truth in it now? And how do we define an aura? Um, because that debate continues, um, particularly, for example, with film, um, you know, well, is I mean, there's there's pros and cons to to using digital versus using film. And then we can kind of get back into that kind of democratic um, aspects of the technology where digital, can, you know, sure, it doesn't have in some ways it doesn't have like the beauty or that kind of um 
you know, uh, yeah, just the feel and, and the, our, you know, the, the artur that, that it yeah. takes to, to kind of use film, like celluloid film to create images. Um, but then that also kind of keeps some people out of the game because it's such an expensive medium still today oh, to work right. with. Right. And so is it really a bad thing that we have, you know, high end, um, you know, high def video that allows, um, you know, some, some talented and, and you know, allows everybody uh, more access. So I think it's really about that, that balance, right, of, of what do we do with all of this and how do we um, create a content, you know, that, um, that, that has that kind of balance. Like you mentioned television. I mean, television now is so different um, however we define television, you know, right. because Netflix is not really television, but I mean, there was a time where if, if you were a Hollywood star and you were in television, well, your career was over. Exactly. And that's not the case anymore. You have A-list celebrities doing, um, you know, many doing quote television on streaming platforms like Hulu and, uh, and Netflix. So I, there's a complete flip in 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 the medium in the kind of ref, like reframing again right of of how of how that that happens yeah um, yeah that that is so true i mean i i'll confess that chapter five was one of the really hard ones for, for me to work through because the kind of television which canada wanted to study in the 70s 80s and 90s is so different from the one uh one that we had now because you know he was focusing upon like distracted attention and the kind of surrealistic you know, remix that you get on, uh, on on MTV, whereas now we tend to have much more a la carte viewing. I mean, schedule doesn't matter, and and there's plenty of quality stuff out there, and people watch with amazing amounts of concentration. I mean, marathon binge viewing. And so, it, you know, the medium is is such a different beast um, than it was back then. But I still think it's it's illuminating to understand. You know, when we think about medium specificity, just how how crazy the history of this medium has been. I mean, a medium is never itself. It's always turning into something else. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, and you do mention um, the like MTV and of course MTV, the, the editing style of music videos um, really changed the way that we create visuals. Um, right. It kind of brought in some, some very almost like avant-garde experimental practices into mainstream. Um, yeah. And that really did kind of, absorbed back into like filmmaking. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's really kind of, it's interesting how these mediums will even feed off of each other. Cause we may think, Oh, this is totally new, but then, you know, Soviet cinema was doing this in the twenties. Um, it just so happened, you know, yeah. that MTV took some of the, uh, you know, the, the kind of montage editing style and then right. completely changed it. And then American cinema was like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> we do this. So, um, so yeah, so the, we, we definitely can't forget the, the medium, um, the medium specificity, as, as you mentioned, I, I, I like that, that word. I'm going to start using that, John. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, really handy for a teaching students grab onto it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I am curious to know, um, as I'm sure our listeners are as well, what are you currently working on? What, what can we see from you in the in the future? Um, you know, I, I had the year off off in quotation marks because last year was kind of a, a strange year, as we all know, thanks to a Guggenheim fellowship. And I wrote most of a media history of weather. Wow. So I'm interested in all the ways that, that we understand weather, the, uh, 
images again. So I've got stuff on, you know, painting and photography and satellite images, but also like in terms of, you know, science and technology, computer networks, literature, there's a lot of interesting stuff about, you know, weather in uh, literature and also in uh, uh, religion, we still talk about the weather gods and so on. And, you know, just as I was, you know, pulling it together, the, you know, the, the pandemic hit and things got crazy and you know, we're going to have to see how it comes together. Um, I'm also thinking, you know, I, I might, I might just write a little book on Moby Dick and the book of Mormon. I just, I just gave a, um, a talk on Moby Dick and the book of Mormon, these two big 19th century blockbuster books that have so many weird similarities and so many really fascinating differences that maybe I'll maybe I'll do something about that. So I'm not exactly sure. Right now I'm in survival mode, trying to teach my classes and make sure my students aren't aren't going crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, as we all kind of go go crazy with it too. It's it's been very odd. But your project sounds super interesting. Yeah. So you know, keep me posted on that, and I'd love to have you oh, um, sure. have you back on and. And, and talk about that. So um, thank you again for joining us, John. And thank you to it's all of our, pleasure. yeah. And thank you to all of our listeners um, until next time, everyone. Um, cheers.